Chapters twenty seven and twenty eight of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty seven. Exit Mrs. Verscoyle. Of course, it is not to be wondered at that the arrest of Vassella made a great sensation. True, Vassella was not a very well known man, but then the strangeness of the case, which was reported with numerous embellishments in all the papers, attracted everybody's notice and then the way the crime had been brought home to him by the divorced wife of the dead man, in fact, it was quite a romance. The curious part of the whole case was that Vassella obstinately refused to say anything in his own defense, and his persistent silence was taken as an acknowledgment of his guilt. But the Marchese only smiled grimly when spoken to, and said he could defend himself well enough when the time came, and, moreover, would be in a position to punish Mrs. Verscoyle. As for that lady, she was quite the heroine of the hour, not exactly in a complimentary sense, perhaps. But everybody wanted to see a woman with such an exciting history who had divorced her husband and then accused her cousin of being his murderer. Plenty of papers wanted to interview her, but she declined to allow herself to be seen and generally sat at home in a quiet private hotel off the Strand, where she exulted over the downfall of Vassella. He wouldn't marry me she said to herself vindictively. Well, we'll see how he likes being in prison for murder. Carmela came up to town and had an interview with her, in which Mrs. Verscoyle lost her temper, as usual. He wanted to marry you. He wanted to marry you, she hissed repeatedly. I couldn't help that, retorted Carmela angrily. I certainly did not want to marry him, and would never have become engaged to him if it had not been to save you. Ha, ha! To save me from the gallows, I suppose. Bah! I do not believe it. He would have accused me of the murder of my husband, the Maltese dog. But he shall die for it. Yes, he shall die. Are you sure he committed this, this crime? said Carmela hesitatingly. Yes, I am sure. Did I not meet him coming out of the cabin on that night? Was the stiletto in the dead man's breast not the one you gave him years ago? Am I sure? Bah! If he is innocent, let him prove it. There was nothing to be got out of Mrs. Verscoyle, who was simply mad with anger, and grew purple in the face till Carmela thought she would break a blood vessel. You ought to be grateful to me, she said furiously, but for me you would have married Vassella, and then what of your Australian lover? You can leave my Australian lover out of the question, said Carmela with great spirit. I am only waiting for this unhappy affair to be settled in order to marry him. Yes, do, do, cried Mrs. Verscoyle, and go with him to Australia. Put the ocean between us. I never wish to see your face again. If it had not been for you, my husband would have loved me. He did love you, said Carmela, but your temper drove him away. At this Mrs. Verscoyle burst out into a storm of anger, so in order to put a stop to the scene, Carmela left the room and went back to the Langham, where Sir Mark Trevor waited her. "'I don't want to see my sister again,' she said firmly, and she never did. Of course, when the trial came on, the court was crowded with the most noted people in London anxious to see the end of this strange case. It ended more dramatically than they thought it would. Vassella entered the dock in a calm, cool manner and glanced quickly round the court, of course everyone thinking he was a hardened scoundrel for not exhibiting more emotion. 
He had engaged a famous lawyer to defend him, and this gentleman was smiling quietly to himself, and by no means looking as if he thought the case a grave one. Foster was in the court, together with Ronald and Sir Mark Trevor, all listening eagerly to the introductory address of the prosecuting counsel. He stated the whole story which had already appeared in the papers, but with some slight variations. That Leopold Verscoil had been married to Miss Bianca Cottoner seven years before, with whom the prisoner was also very much in love. When she married the deceased, the prisoner had sworn he would kill him. The prisoner, however, did not carry his resolution into effect at that time, but went travelling about Europe, and Miss Cottoner married the deceased. They did not live happily together and separated, which separation was afterwards followed by a divorce, owing to the deceased's infidelity with another woman called Elsie MacGregor. The deceased then travelled all over the world and was coming to England on board the P&O steamer Neptune, which stopped at Malta. While there, the deceased went on shore and was recognised by his wife, who went on board to speak to him. The prisoner was also on board with the sister of the deceased called Miss Carmela Cottoner, and then, according to Mrs. Verscoil, who was the principal witness, recognized deceased and heard him tell Mr. Monteith, another witness, the number of his cabin. The prisoner then disappeared from Mrs. Verscoil's side, and when she went to speak to her husband, she met the prisoner coming out of the cabin, and though he tried to prevent her, she looked in and saw her husband, or rather her husband that had been, lying dead with a stiletto in his breast. The stiletto, as will appear from the evidence of Miss Carmela Cottoner, was given by that lady to the prisoner, and was used in the commission of this crime. With a few concluding remarks, the counsel for the prosecution sat down, and the witnesses were called. During all the discourse the Marchese never moved a muscle, but sat in the dock as still as death. The first witness called was Ronald, who repeated the story the dead man had told him, and during his examination the paper written by Carmela was put in evidence. He was followed by Carmela, who deposed that she had given the stiletto in question to the prisoner, and also said that the letter produced was written by her, and not by the wife of the deceased Mrs. Verscoil. Question. You were on board when Mrs. Verscoil came? Answer. Yes. Question. Was she alone? Answer. At first, yes. Afterwards she was escorted by the Marchese Vasella. Question. Did you see her again? A. No. Q. When the Marchese saw you again, what time was it? A. About a quarter past nine, just after the boat started. Q. Did he make any remark? A. None, except that my sister could not find me in the crowd and had to go ashore without saying goodbye. Q. Was he agitated? A. No, he was in his usual spirits. This closed Carmela's examination, and the next to go into the witness box was Mrs. Verscoil, pale and haggard, but who glanced angrily at the prisoner as she kissed the book. She repeated the story she had told to Ronald and Foster, that she was with Vassella and wanted to see her husband. Both herself and her cousin heard him tell the number of his cabin, and though she tried to get near her husband, she was prevented by the crowd. Afterwards, she missed Vassella, and on going along to see her husband in the cabin, she found Vassella coming out. He tried to prevent her going in, but she insisted, and found her husband lying dead with a stiletto in his breast. Q. You know to whom the stiletto belonged? A. Yes, to the prisoner. It was given to him by my sister. Q. What did the prisoner say when you met him? A. 
He implored me not to tell, and for the sake of the honor of our family I complied. Q. Do you know by doing so you run the risk of being taken as an accomplice? A. Mrs. Verscoyle getting angry. I know nothing of English customs. I am a Maltese lady. Q. Did you ever hear the prisoner threaten the deceased? A. Yes, very many times. He wanted to marry me, and when I married the deceased he swore he would revenge himself. Q. That was seven years ago. Did he do so lately? A. Many times. Here Vassella shrugged his shoulders. This was the close of Mrs. Verscoe's examination, and was supposed by the people present to be conclusive evidence of the prisoner's guilt. There was no evidence for the prosecution, and so the counsel for the defense arose to make his speech, a speech which considerably startled everyone. In the first place, he said Mrs. Verscoyle was guilty of perjury. Sensation. Gross perjury. It was true the prisoner was once in love with her, but that was seven years ago, and he had long since forgotten his passion. The prisoner was on board the Neptune on the night in question, going to England, and Mrs. Verscoyle also came on board. She wanted to see her husband, and the prisoner, hearing the number of the cabin, volunteered to look for him. He was considerably delayed in the crowd, and did not reach the cabin for some time, particularly as he met one of the stewards who asked him about his luggage and engaged his attention for nearly ten minutes. When he reached the cabin he knocked, and getting no reply, entered. He found the deceased dead, sensation, having committed suicide, and on the washstand by the berth was a letter directed to Mr. R. Monteith, a friend of the deceased, stating that he had committed suicide. This paper the prisoner took charge of, and was coming out with it, when he met Mrs. Verscoyle. He told her what had occurred, and she was so shocked with the news that she went straight to shore. The prisoner was blamable in not producing the paper at the inquest, but had anyone been accused of the crime he would have produced it. With regard to the stiletto, it was once the property of the prisoner, but he had given it to the deceased as a parting gift before he left for Australia, for both the deceased and prisoner were good friends then. The wife of the deceased, Mrs. Verscoyle, knew that the deceased had the dagger in his possession, as the prisoner showed a letter to her from deceased, acknowledging the gift of stiletto, letter produced. She was in love with prisoner, who refused to marry her, being in love with Miss Carmela Cottoner, to whom he was engaged to be married. Mrs. Verscoyle, hearing of this, came here from Valletta, and had a private interview with prisoner. During his absence from his room at the Langham Hotel, she stole the confession made by the deceased, and it is now in her possession. She— That's a lie, cried Mrs. Verscoyle, mad with fury rising from her seat. Silence in the court, cried the usher. I will not be silent. It is an infamous lie. That man is guilty of murder. He killed my husband. And, by God, by God! All at once she stopped speaking, her face turned to a ghastly pallor, and appeared convulsively drawn to one side as if by a stroke of paralysis. Every eye in the court was fastened on that solitary figure, and there was an awful pause of expectancy. Another moment, and she fell prone on the floor with a heavy thud. The court was in an uproar at the strange occurrence, and at first it was thought she had merely fainted through excitement. A doctor, however, being present, came forward, and knelt down by Mrs. Verscoyle, who was now breathing stertorously. He glanced at her pain-drawn face, felt her pulse, and while he was doing so the heavy breathing stopped. "'What is the matter?' asked the judge, bending forward. "'Is it a faint?' The doctor raised his head. 
No, my lord, it is death. Death, echoed several voices, and the court arose in confusion. Yes, she has burst a blood vessel in the brain. Dead, dead, yes, Mrs. Verscoil was dead, in the very moment of her triumph. 28. A Scrap of Paper The sudden death of Mrs. Verscoil so appalled everyone that the trial was adjourned. A great sensation was created when the report came out in the papers, and numerous were the theories as to how the trial would end, now the principal witness was dead. As a matter of fact, according to public opinion, the only thing that could prove the innocence of Vassala was the production of the letter written by the dead man, and alleged to have been stolen by Mrs. Verscoil, and after the body had been removed, Ronald, in company with Foster and Vassala's lawyer, went to look for it. "'What shall we do if she has destroyed it?' said Ronald as they walked along. "'Oh, she hasn't destroyed it,' replied Vassala's lawyer, whose name was Winks. "'She would have produced it at the eleventh hour.' "'Then you think such a paper is in existence?' said Foster. "'I'm certain of it, and Mrs. Verscoil knew the Marchese was innocent. She only accused him out of jealousy. But why did he not deny the charge at once instead of letting himself be placed in such a perilous position?' "'I don't know,' said Winks. "'He never gave me any explanation.' But he knew he was safe, for even should the paper not be forthcoming, the evidence of the deceased, that Vassala had given him the dagger, would save him. If he hadn't the stiletto, he couldn't have killed him with it. That's flat. But Verscoil distinctly denied to me that he had any intention of committing suicide, said Ronald. Winks shrugged his shoulders. Changed his mind, I suppose. He evidently did it on the spur of the moment. But here we are at last. They went into the hotel and were shown into the late Mrs. Verscoil's room by the landlady, who had heard of her lodger's death and was much scared thereat. "'I knew she'd break a blood vessel,' she said, smoothing her black silk dress. "'The rages she got into were awful. They won't bring the corpse here, I hope.' "'No,' replied Ronald. "'It has been taken to Sir Mark Trevor's townhouse.' "'Didn't know he had one,' said Foster. "'He stops at the Langham.' Oh, yes, he dislikes his townhouse immensely, and being a student of human nature likes the life of an hotel. I don't think he's far wrong myself. They went to Mrs. Verscoil's room and hunted everywhere for the paper so much required, but in vain. Ransacked her desk, looked through her trunks, but without any satisfactory result. Perhaps she's left it about for greater safety, said Foster, referring to Poe's queer story of the purloined letter. The landlady was called up and questioned, but denied ever seeing the paper. "'Perhaps she had it with her,' she suggested, as the three gentlemen looked blankly at one another. "'No, the body had been searched, so they left the hotel in despair.' "'Looks bad for Vassala,' said Ronald. "'Not a bit,' retorted the stout-hearted Winks. "'The stiletto evidence will get him off. But Mrs. Verscoil evidently intended he should swing, and has perhaps destroyed the paper.' He went off, so Ronald invited Foster to dine with him at the Tavistock, an invitation which that gentleman accepted. All the newsboys along the Strand were calling out sensational sentences about the case, and Ronald bought some papers to read. When they entered the hotel, the clerk handed Ronald a letter that had been waiting for him all day. It was addressed in a woman's handwriting, and Monteith opened it carelessly, but on glancing at the contents he gave a shout which startled Foster. 
What's the matter, old chap? The missing paper, gasped Ronald, holding it out. And so it was. Foster took it and read it. My dear Monteith, I'm sick of life, and as I've no one to consult about staying in it, I'm going into the next world straight off. Lionel Venton. This puts Vassella's innocence beyond all doubt, said Foster. But the signature will have to be proved. Can you do it? No, replied Monteith, but there's Mrs. Taunton. Yes, we'll have to see her, said the barrister, putting the letter in his pocket. But how the deuce did it come to you? I don't know, said Ronald blankly. Unless she never intended Vassala should suffer, but sent me this today and the case would have been squashed tomorrow. I believe she was mad. Foster thought so also, especially when they went back to the hotel and found how the letter had been posted. Mrs. Verscoil had placed it in an envelope and directed it to Ronald, but, evidently changing her mind, went out leaving it on the table. A waiter coming in had seen it, so posted it at once, thinking it was an oversight on Mrs. Verscoil's part. There was no difficulty in proving the document to be authentic, as Mrs. Taunton affirmed at once that both the writing and the signature were in her brother's handwriting, and supported her assertion by producing his letters to her, which put the whole question beyond a doubt. This curious ending to a curious case made a great sensation, but Vassella took his acquittal very coolly. He was more annoyed at Carmela's refusal to marry him than anything else, as that young lady not only refused to see him, but wrote a letter and upbraided him for the falsehood he had told regarding her sister's guilt to gain her hand. Vassella did not answer the letter, but seeing there was no hope for him went off to America, and found among the passengers the Bishop of Patagonia and his wife accompanied by Mrs. Pellipop, who had insisted on coming. The bishop yielded in the secret hope that some benevolent cannibal might eat the old lady, but she evidently did not look inviting enough, as she is still alive and hearty. Mrs. Verscoil, whose unhappy fate no one particularly deplored, was buried in Kensal Green Cemetery, and lies there at rest with all her loves, her hates, and ambitions. Carmela could not honestly pretend to mourn, but she regretted that the last interview she had with her was such a stormy one. Ronald went down again to Hurley and spent the summer months on the river in the delightful company of Carmela, who, now that the cloud, so long overshadowing her life, had passed away, was perfectly happy. They were wrapped up in one another and paid no attention to the other guests at Belfield. This was decidedly selfish, and would have been resented, only it so happened that two other couples under Sir Mark Trevor's hospitable roof were doing precisely the same thing. In the first place, Mr. Patrick Ryan had persuaded Kate Lester to agree to change her name for his own. A fair exchange is no robbery, observed Pat when he proposed. I give you my name, and you give me yourself. And you call that a fair exchange, retorted his lady love. I think you're getting the best of the bargain. I'm marrying a poor man. Of course, said Pat cheerfully. That's where my self-sacrifice comes in. I can't support myself, so I'm going to support you. We can live on bread and cheese and... Well, if you've no objection, we'll have an acting charade on the last word. They did. Sir Mark was resigned to the infliction of two loving couples staying with him, but he did feel rather crushed when Gerald Foster asked him to bestow Bell's hand upon him. Good gracious, ejaculated the astonished baronet. It's a catching disease. I'm glad Mrs. Pellypop isn't here, or I'd fall a victim to matrimony myself. 
He liked Foster, however, and moreover saw he was a man likely to make his mark in the world, so agreed to the engagement and resigned himself, in a Christian spirit, to the awful fact of living in the same house with three young men engaged to the same number of young women. "'I feel like an elderly Cupid,' he said plaintively. "'The only remedy for this epidemic of love-making is to get them married as soon as possible.' So, as soon as possible, the marriages took place all at the same time in the church at Marlowe, and the excitement was great over the treble event, as such a thing had not occurred in the neighborhood within the memory of man. It will be interesting news to all matrimonial pessimists that none of these marriages have as yet turned out failures, or does there seem the least chance of any such possibility. Foster, with the assistance of his father-in-law, soon got plenty of briefs and is now a brilliant Q.C. cherishing dreams of the bench and the woolsack. Miss Lester's uncle dying left her all his money, which Pat devoted to restoring the home of his ancestors, where he lives now with his pretty wife and is not much troubled, except by his tenants, who won't pay any rent. And Ronald? Oh, Ronald is in far-off Australia, and by his side stands the girl from Malta. End of chapters 27 and 28 End of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume Recorded by Celine Major